0: Overall, the the typical message of send money, not supplies, just isn't going to work. It, it it hasn't worked. Um, it's not that we should stop that message. We should continue that message, but we really need to work on mitigating and managing the second disaster through technology.
1: Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly, your emergency management podcast, and this is your host, Todd Devoe. You know they say that uh, troops don't move without food well same thing with emergency management the world doesn't move unless we have logistics and this week we're talking to Brian Sims uh, about disaster logistics and an organization that he has founded based upon disaster logistics and logistics is one of those key principles that we really need to understand in the field of emergency management. And I think that if we take a look at programs like what Brian has started, we're going to be well, well better off. Now,
0: on to the interview.
1: Hey, Brian, welcome to uh, Ian Weekly. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. Really looking forward to having a conversation with you today.
1: So, uh, Brian, tell me just... How'd you get involved in emergency management and what are you doing now?
0: Oh, I would say my first kind of introduction to emergency management was Hurricane Andrew. Uh, I was born and raised in Miami, about 12 years old when it happened. And my father owned a very large electrical contracting company, and they were the only private company that was allowed to work on FPL lines down in South Florida. So he took me down to Homestead Air Reserve Base where the 82nd Airborne had flown in and set up to do a uh, response. And I saw what was going on down there and all these guys running around in maroon berets and I was like, this is pretty cool. And he explained to me what was happening and you know, they took him up in a Black Hawk and flew him around and I saw those pictures and I, I just thought that was really cool, both on the military side and I, I, really emergency management, which I didn't really understand. But after getting out of the military... Um, kind of lacking a new mission. And at that time, Team Rubicon had formed. Uh, It was 2011. And so I signed up and started doing emergency management with them. Um, I was the Florida State PIO and Communications Manager. And then I was promoted to uh, Deputy Regional Manager for Program Operations. And I also transferred over to Hawaii and did Program Operations for Team Rubicon over there. Um, So during that time, I was studying social work and working with veterans specifically. And once I finished that up, I decided I was going to attend Barry University to kind of get more professional in emergency management. And I studied emergency management over there. So that's uh, that's kind of the broad scope of of my involvement. Um, In the past couple years, I've worked with a couple other veteran-based organizations doing some responses with Harvey, Irma, Maria, Florence, and most lately, obviously, Hurricane Michael here in the state of Florida.
1: That's one of my favorite questions to ask specifically on uh, uh, how you got involved in EM because everybody has such a crazy and different way they got involved. So that's kind of cool.
0: So what are you doing now? So now I have formed a new organization called the Disaster Logistics Board. And our mission statement is that we merge the skills of veterans and civilians to mitigate and uh, manage disaster supply chain issues. And and that's obviously very broad for a reason. Um, So we kind of have some core competencies. And and really what we are, we're not really volunteer-based. We don't actively go out and seek like a bunch of volunteers. Really what we are is an incident management assistance team. Um, So it's people that are experienced in emergency management, uh, a lot of them are military veterans, uh, have done deployments, and, you know, we're all hazards trained. We're cross-trained in chief-level positions, and kind of our core competencies are data collection, uh, disaster mapping with uh, UAS systems, and also disaster mapping uh, with street-level photography. So we do a lot of intel collection, and that assists, you know, state, county Uh, city emergency managers, FEMA, contractors, search and rescue teams. Um, We're very data-driven. That's that's kind of our focus.
1: So how do you get your jobs?
0: How do we get our jobs? Um, Well, we are members of the Florida VOAD. uh, So when there are declared disasters, uh, those can be passed down to us, either from Florida State Emergency Management, um, or it could come from VOAD themselves on a specific request. Uh, we have an MOU with both of them, so uh, it, it could come from anywhere. Right now, actually, our IMAT is at a level three status. We're assisting an organization in Haiti with uh, some of the civil unrest down there, and we're providing intel, logistic support, donations, coordination for some flights of aid going down. Really, that's supporting a lot of the police officers and EMTs in Haiti that are responding to some of the violent protests that are down there.
1: So one of the questions that we get a lot specifically about um, nonprofit organizations and and non-government agencies is how do they build those relationships with um, their clients for lack of a better term?
0: So I guess the question is how are we building those relationships?
1: Um like just in in general, like if somebody you're talking to the nonprofit organizations out there right now, and how do they build those relationships with those uh agencies that they want to help?
0: Yeah, so we do a lot of direct outreach looking for the actual decision makers. Uh I will I'll use Hurricane Michael, for instance. Um so Wes Mull is the former director for Florida State Emergency Management, and he came by my operation. And we liaised for about an hour. And from there, he passed me on and gave me numbers to other decision makers, branch managers, uh, other EOCs that we had you know, gone on site and liaised with as well. And then we also do direct outreach to other NGOs and um, response organizations that may have just kind of loosely formed. So with that, we're hoping to educate them, train them and kind of fold them into the processes of what like ICS and NIMS are and hopefully get them into VOAD um, or be working with like long-term recovery committees and stuff like that. So it's a lot of direct outreach to the decision makers themselves.
1: How important is it for an NGO to be involved in a VOAD or a COAD?
0: So I, I think that it, it is vital um, I, to answer that question, I think we need to to talk a little bit about some of the incidents that have happened, uh, most specifically since Hurricane Harvey. Um, what we've noticed is a large trend in these loosely formed organizations that have popped up. Uh, a lot of them are veterans, which is great. Um, <clears throat> and they, they come out, a lot of them do search and rescue, uh, what they call search and rescue. And then they kind of hang around and help with volunteer and donation coordination. And those organizations, they may not be educated on what's actually happening out there. A lot of them don't even know what ICS or NIMS is, uh, who to contact. And let's say like in the state of Florida, ESF-15s, which help with uh, the volunteer and NGO sector. Um, So, again, what we're trying to do is, is get those guys folded into the process and also get them the equipment that they need to accomplish their mission. So if we've got a lot of these guys that are boots on ground and they're hanging out in the disaster AO and they've got pallets upon pallets of water or diapers and things like that, you know, do they know where to send that stuff? Is it actually moving around? Um, Do they have a forklift to move it? (laughs) Do they have shrink wrap and stuff like that? So being able to fold those guys into the process is a major priority for us. Um, Without the ability to track what it is that they're doing out there, um, that's what we see as a huge white space. It's it's known unknowns, right? So what we're trying to do as an IMAT is be able to give guys the access, these organizations access to that equipment, and also get some data from them on what kind of supplies are running around Along with what their capabilities are, so that we can get that information to an ESF 15 that can pass it up the chain of command and, you know, help them to manage the disaster and improve their response capability since they're already boots on ground.
1: So I know that um, I forget the name of the hurricane now. I think it's Florence. There it is, the one that hit uh, North Carolina. So Florence. Mm-hmm. So let me. Yeah. So, I know that with hurricane Florence um a couple of towns in North Carolina actually um asked the some volunteer organizations to to leave because they didn't understand what they're doing or that they weren't communicating directly with them um is doing the work that you're kind of doing is that going to alleviate those concerns that uh communities have with the uh, volunteer organizations just showing up
0: yeah, absolutely um. I I think that kind of our general conversation today is going to be speaking about what we term in emergency management as the second disaster, right, which is the unsolicited donations and spontaneous volunteers that pop up. And and there is that issue, um, especially in EOCs. Um, You have guys that are out in the field, whether that's firefighters, law enforcement, um, FEMA teams that may be out there that are collecting some data, but they may not be liaising with these smaller organizations. And also what we've noticed is those smaller organizations kind of keep to themselves. They don't want to interact with the government. A lot of that may be because they're afraid to get kicked out of the scene. um, Or, you know, there's a lot of mistrust when it comes to the public and, you know, federal agencies, state agencies and stuff like that. So being able to kind of act as a middleman and a buffer between state level or other emergency management decision makers and those organizations, um, <clears throat> that's that is a priority of ours. It, it's very important that an organization, uh, a professional organization like um, a state emergency management office or you know local county stuff like that, has a volunteer agency liaison someone that is actually reaching out actively to speak to those organizations that may be based in the area and then most especially in the times of response itself or recovery um, that they know what the capabilities of these organizations are out there now we've obviously experienced a lot of fraud when it comes to disaster response so being able to get out there and understand who these organizations are can help get rid of some of the guys that are just hangers-on uh, maybe are just trying to make their social media look cool and they raise money on GoFundMes and then they pocket all that money, um, <clears throat> which obviously creates even more mistrust down the line. Uh, so that's that that's a huge thing that, that we really want to work on and help mitigate.
1: Yeah, and that issue also isn't just for the uh, unaffiliated volunteers. Uh, we had a problem in LA County a couple of uh, months ago during the Woolsey Fire where the sheriff's deputies wouldn't allow certain members to respond. And the city of Malibu was relying upon those members to help work in the EOC. And, uh, and so the communication down to the field level of who's acceptable and who's not needs to be done early as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, and, and the reason why we call ourselves Disaster Logistics Board is because we would like to move ourselves into the type of status where we're almost like a VOAD, where organizations that may not necessarily qualify to get into either a state level and most specifically like a national level where where you could be a tier one or a tier two VOAD organization, um, that we can get those guys the same access to information, um, the equipment, uh, being able to track what it is that they have when they are boots on ground and, and be able to pass that information on, uh, either up the chain of command or down the chain of command, whichever way that information needs to flow. Um, Wes Mall, when he uh, when he visited my site during the Hurricane Michael response, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, "Wow, I, I didn't realize what you guys were doing here," uh, and that's and we were working with Holmes County UC, Jackson, um, and You know, it it just, it's, there's so much chaos, obviously, inside of a response. I mean, in emergency management, that's what we do, right? Chaos management. Um, So the dissemination of information is extremely important. In fact, we saw some of those issues in Jackson County, um, and the reason why we responded and set ourselves up in Holmes County was specifically because we knew we were just outside the eye path. We'd have, you know, communications and infrastructure pop up a little bit faster, and it's easier to ingress. Um, from the west to the east into Jackson County because of that eyewall path. But what we noticed in Jackson County was because the response was being focused on what we call the strand, right? So right along the shore, so you got Panama City Beach all the way over to Mexico and uh, Port St. Joe. So the, the concentration of resources over there, the people that are a little bit further inland, uh, weren't really getting the amount of support that they needed, so they were very, very overwhelmed over there. For instance, uh, their dissemination of information to active organizations that are larger, like Team Rubicon, Team Rubicon uh, was doing a great job of getting guys out there and and doing what they do when it comes to damage assessments. But uh, I think I was I visited their site maybe a week post event. And they had something like 600 outstanding work orders and they were completing three or four a day, um, which is like unheard of. And, and really, a lot of that just came down to the dissemination of information and the collection of information. So if they had had a little bit better data and other organizations had better data on what was going on out there and that information was you know being transferred to the EOC and back from the EOC to them, uh, that would have alleviated a lot of problems and, and helped sped up recovery. So that's kind of where we're folding ourselves into the process there.
1: No, that makes a hundred percent sense right there. You know, um, I do know some of the issues too is for the coming from the professional side is that what capabilities do these, do these organizations really have compared to what they say? And I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's where some of the, uh, the questions come in. Um, even with like Team Rubicon, when, it's funny we we think about them being so well known, but there are still pockets of places where they don't understand what they do or what the capabilities are, and they're 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 hesitant to uh, pull that trigger when it comes to working with an organization even as big as Team Rubicon. You know, you have American Red Cross. Everybody knows they're going to do shelters. And huh capabilities right Uh, but when you go oh they have these capabilities they go really and you know they can do this and and they're not really sure how that works and uh, and uh, so I think we as emergency managers have to do a better job of understanding what volunteer organizations are out there what their capabilities are and I think the volunteer organizations have to do a better job of reaching out like what you're talking about and making those relationships way prior to any disaster occurring you know so I think you're doing a great job on, on that aspect of it.
0: I I agree with with that statement completely. I think that kind of falls back to uh, Administrator Long's initiative for a whole community approach, right? Everyone needs to be working together. We know that that has to happen. Um, So yes, if the organization itself is not reaching out to, I'll use Florida as an example, so Volunteer Florida is who heads up the ESF 15 function in the state of Florida. Um, So if they're not as a volunteer organization, reaching out to Volunteer Florida, no one really knows what they're doing, right? Um, But I I do want to circle back to an issue that's connected to this, and and that's, again, about the spontaneous volunteers. So These loosely formed organizations, when it comes to the capabilities, um, a lot of these organizations say that their use are, right? That they do search and rescue and... They they might have a boat or they may have, you know, some military experience of some sort. But really, do they have that capability? Is it just a couple guys getting in a John boat and going out there, you know, in the middle of of flooding or whatever it might be to go rescue guys? And, And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but inherent in that is the fact that they're probably not actually trained to do that right? You wouldn't just grab some guy off the street and throw him to a USAR task force and say, okay, well, this guy's going to help you with the technical rescue. I mean, Joe Schmoe doesn't know how to do that type of stuff. And, and similarly, especially in the veteran sector, guys that may be standing up to do this, if, if all you ever did was logistics, right, you probably don't have any type of infantry training, right? So we wouldn't want to put that guy necessarily in that scenario with at least a little bit of some refresh for training or something like that. And same thing in this space. So in that second disaster scenario, it it does worry us that you're going to have secondary casualties on an already taxed first responder system. So the point is to be able to take guys that may be a little bit of a liability and try and turn them into an asset uh, in preparation phase, right? So, so preparedness obviously is, is a big deal in across emergency management. And that's kind of one of the sectors that we're trying to focus on is to be able to get those guys the training and fold them into the process. So we're all speaking the same language and we're all on the same page to help mitigate that stuff.
1: That's so true. When you were talking about that, I was thinking. I took a ropes course and I was doing a lot of repelling about 20 years ago. I don't think I've been on a line in probably 20 something plus. You think I would be the first guy that would say, "Yeah, strap me into a seat and I'm going over the side," you know?
0: <laughs> I mean, it's fun and it's and it's all well and good. Um, I think that social media is a, is a major part behind this because one, access information, and two, the ability to you know disseminate that information to the public. Is, is so easy these days. Um, you have so many different platforms that you can use for that type of stuff. Um, so I do have to applaud the the citizens themselves, whether that's you know working with like a a Cajun Navy type model or whatever, any of these other type of loosely formed organizations to stand up and want to help. And same thing on the donation side. Um, but I I do think it's a bit of a paradox that in the decades worth of emergency management that we've been dealing with here in this country, that no one is out there actively tracking the community source donations that are out there in the disaster supply chain. Um, you know, that, that constitutes a vast majority of humanitarian aid that's in a given disaster. It, it, when a state stands up a, a pod, a point of distribution, really all they're ever going to give out is you know, water, MREs, and maybe tarps and ice, right? But a normal citizen, after about 72 hours, that guy is is done eating MREs. <laughs> He'd like to have some snacks, um, and then, you know, the baby stuff comes into play, the formula, the diapers, and things like that. So really, that's the majority, right? So if we can start tracking what it is out there that's actually on hand and being distributed from a church, a volunteer fire station, a Kiwanis club, whatever that might be, uh, then we can really start to tackle these issues. And, you know, logistics has never changed since the moment we walked out of caves. It's always been, what's the need? Where are those resources at? And then how do we get those resources to the people that are in need? And the only change over time has been the technology to be able to do that, whether that's actual, um, you know, technology via the internet or the wheel itself, right? Uh, airplanes, whatever that might be. So, what we're doing is we are partners with Esri's public safety division and disaster response team. So, we utilize a lot of GIS uh, to be able to track that stuff. And then we also have a partnership with a software for service called Boxstorm. And Boxstorm is a freeware uh, cloud hosted technology that basically tracks inventory you can scan barcodes and stuff like that so if we can get all that information on what's going on out there we can throw it on heat maps you know we can let an eoc know what's really out there and then they can strategically deploy pods uh, or close down pods however that might be to be able to help out the citizens out there and one of the main ways that we do that is utilizing survey123 which is an app that was developed by esri and it's basically form-centric so and it can collect data both online and offline so with the form that we have we can go to a pod we can train the pod leaders and the volunteers at that pod on how to use the form it's very simple Um, first thing we do is we try and geotag that form itself to either the citizens address or if they don't want to give that up at least their zip code and then we collect some demographics information Uh, about that household so you know population size children under five things like that then we get an initial damage assessment reported by them which is huge so do you have power do you have water can you ingress and egress from your home things like that and then the, the final piece that we collect is what their requests for supplies are that's not necessarily what they'll be receiving but what it is that they actually need in that household so that data set is gold and that's something that should be collected at every single point of distribution, whether that's community or a state-run pod. So that information lets us know what's the need and what's going on out there. On the, on the damage assessment side, you can put your contractors and USAR teams and all that type of stuff out there with better, with better reported data so they can strategically take care of recovery and, um, and response aspects.
1: So how, how do you plan on scaling up? Right now you're in one state. How can you make it to all 50? Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors.
0: Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed... Mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive.
1: Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them and tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. So how, how do you plan on scaling up? Right now you're in one state. How can you make it to all 50?
0: <laughs> um, so really we're, we're going to work with VOAD a lot on that. And, you know, we will be attending like the IAM conferences, the governor's hurricane conference here in the state of Florida. Uh, so we can meet other emergency managers from other districts, other states, other FEMA regions, uh, and continue to try and disseminate what it is that we do and our capabilities, and also just try and pass on some of the, you know, what we kind of soapbox on, um, which is you've got to collect this data, you've got to reach out to these organizations that have stood themselves up, um, <clears throat> and hopefully through that we, we can kind of turn the tide and and really start to manage the the second disaster because. Overall, the the typical message of send money, not supplies, just isn't going to work. It, it, it hasn't worked. Um, it's not that we should stop that message. We should continue that message. But we really need to work on mitigating and managing the second disaster through technology. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things that we've put in as a capability to the DLB is the disaster mapping. Um, so that, that type of data collection can be vital. So the first thing that we do is we utilize drones. So we have an Enterprise 2 dual drone that allows us to collect data, uh, obviously aerial, but it also has FLIR capability alongside a high resolution camera. So that can be utilized by a first responder organization, a USAR team, they can actually take it from us if they like to, we can fly it for them. Uh, along with we're, we're working with a couple companies to do some long-range aerial mapping, some of the survey drones. Um, but most importantly, what we're starting to do is we're starting to do the street level imagery. So this capability is something we're really trying to push out there to emergency managers of, on how vital this could be. So our ability to take a GoPro Fusion camera, which is a 360 camera, Obviously, it's very high resolution. It can collect imagery in 5.6K. We can take that data set on both driving around and then obviously if we hit an area that's, you know, there's a lot of um, structural damage, trees down, power lines, stuff like that. Uh, If need be, we can take that camera off. We can helmet, mount it, and then go survey on foot or we can throw that same camera onto the drone if it's really bad or dangerous uh, and fly that drone forward so what that what that imagery allows us to do is give a data set that can be utilized through a computer screen or even beyond that into vr we're trying to work with oculus team uh, facebook's oculus team and you can actually take a guy that is a decision maker that's in an EOC that never gets out in the field, and allow them to see what's actually out there on the ground beyond some of the, the text-based, you know, whether it's a an ICS form or an email with just a couple of pictures attached to it. Um, so, so that capability and that utilization of technology—that's the type of stuff that we really need to look for.
1: And one of the things that I find interesting right now is that. We're kind of in this transition between like the traditional emergency manager who's used to doing, you know, whiteboards and pencils and pens, and, and which is needed in times because sometimes we don't have electricity and stuff like this to work. And then we have the new generation, you guys coming up, that are really tech savvy, understand it, really implemented into our, our disaster zones. And I, there's my generation of emergency manager who's sort of in that transitional phase, right? You know, we're the guys, that, they, we're the ones that uh, embrace the concept of WebEOC and the smart boards and things like this. And we keep moving up technology-wise. And I think that as emergency managers, we need to embrace what you guys are doing. I want to talk about you, this, organizations like you with using drones, using uh, smart vehicles, using smart technology to get into our disaster areas as the disaster is happening. Where we're not going to put human lives at risk, doing proper windshield surveys. By the air and being able to get a better understanding of it, so right now, thank you for what you're doing and Number two, those of us that are old school emergency managers out there listening, take heed because this is what we need to be doing we need to we need to embrace this and not fight this so that's I'm a little soapboxing right here
0: <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for saying that um you know, I think that the the one organization i I do really have to highlight and it's not just because we're partners with them it's the reason behind why we're partners with them, and that's Esri's ArcGIS. And most states, counties, cities are going to have someone that's working with GIS. Most of them have an ArcGIS account, whether that's you know online or they're using an enterprise account or something like that. They should really be working with their GIS guys because it's such a robust technology now. Um, The ability to create web apps um, and then some of their native apps that they have, like, for instance, Workforce right? So, Esri's workforce uh, allows dispatching, work order management, and live tracking of guys that are on the field. Now, they may have another system. Let's say a county may use another system uh, that's working off their, their 911 response system. And a lot, of, a lot of those systems actually work with ArcGIS and Esri technology these days as well. So, the, the kind of cross-platform and industry-standard stuff uh, emergency managers should really be reaching out and figuring out what it is that that side of the house is doing and what those capabilities are and vice versa. The GIS team should absolutely be trying to disseminate those uh, solutions to the decision makers so that those decision makers are, are really aware of, of, the types of deployments of those technologies that, that they can use, whether that's an operations dashboard that's up in an EOC, uh, all the way to being able to deploy some of the, the field-level apps for data collection. Uh, for instance, I know um, both Survey123 and Collector apps from Esri, those were utilized a whole bunch in the Hurricane Michael response uh, by, by some of the USAR teams. So, you know, that's basically near real-time data that's being being disseminated directly into the cloud and into an EOC, uh, utilizing some of the other technologies that we need to know about as emergency managers, like FirstNet, right? Um, Also, cradle-point technologies or Iridium systems, all the way over to even ATAC, which is an Android-based technology that Um, DOD uses uh, it's it's kind of like a blue force tracker, so it gives you real time awareness uh, alongside maps that uh, shows you where your units are out there, what their capabilities are, and then being able to identify some of the hazards that may be out there in in this type of scenario.
1: Yeah, we've had that capability for years to be able to track our units. I mean, uh, the city of Anaheim has this. software called uh it's kind of funny it's called evoc it has nothing to do with driving um so, but uh it's called evoc and they were able to track where everybody's at during any given time uh in their eoc which you know i, I it took a little bit to get past the uh the unions because they thought it was big brother But the the uh, <laughs> the mou with the union basically stated that they would be using that that software for any discipline uh right so but the idea is, is is, during times of disaster, you know exactly live where your people are. And then we've been utilizing cameras, you know, that, uh, the uh, traffic cameras, things like this, uh, the Caltrans cameras to be able to uh, look at disaster. So it's not, it's not foreign to EOCs. Uh, it's just the, the foreign part of it is the uh, the technology that goes along with it, able to uh, to track it and to to actually get proper data and to be able to uh, uh, make decisions based upon information coming in via that data. So I think that's some training that we need to do um, as a, as a profession and I and employ the employer uh, that the EMIs of the world and the uh, CSTIs and and whatever state equivalent there is out there of the training um, try to take this and embrace this and create curriculum around it and, and really start training emergency managers up on, on what's out there.
0: I agree completely. I think you will see, or well, we will see a turnover as the millennial generation starts becoming emergency managers um, and, and knows and is comfortable with a lot more uh, technology driven stuff. But at the end of the day, I mean, here in my office, I have five whiteboards. I still whiteboard a lot of stuff. There's still a lot of pen and paper um, because I I, I guess I could say that really my military experience is is that's rooted in my military experience. Um, Technology is an assistant, but it's not something that we can rely on. Same thing in emergency management. I mean, what if those cameras go down? We, We saw things like that happen in Mexico Beach and Panama City. You know cameras get wiped out. The unexpected almost always happens in a disaster, right? So being able to break ourselves down to the base level of of um, of response and and how to manage that disaster is also very important. So I would also kind of on a soapbox encourage any incoming emergency managers kind of from the millennial generation to make sure that they have the that skill set built into that. They're not totally reliant on a computer or a laptop or communications to happen because if we look at an all hazards approach, I mean, what if it was an EMP, a nuclear type event or something like that? Comms are gone. How are you going to be able to do that? Do you know how to just fill out that ICS form instead of using um, maybe a form-centric other type of application that's filling out a a 213RR, right, like a resource request form or something like that. Um, and you know, obviously, there's guidance in in the fogs that you know show how to do that in a field in a field operations guide. Um, but I think it's important for everyone to be cross trained across the board as well. I think that's another issue that we look at in emergency management. People get so pigeonholed in either planning or logistics or whatever uh, kind of branch or division that they're working in that they're not communicating with uh, With the other sections as well as they should be, which is similar to like the nine eleven thing, right? So the nine eleven event was what FBI and CIA didn't speak to each other the way that they should have and and that's just an example of what can happen in emergency management. and I think the whole community approach aspect helps to mitigate that. but internally with, with professional emergency managers, uh, within their organization, they should be reaching out across the aisle, you know, across the desktop, whatever it might be, um, to what the rest of their agency is doing.
1: You're absolutely right. At the end of the day, it comes down to uh, training, and exercise properly put together, training exercises, you know, um, and 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 practicing pen and paper, but also uh, you going through the whole the whole gamut of it. And you're right; communication is always key. Um, one of the things that I encourage when we're doing our training, specifically OC stuff, is walk across the room and talk to the other divisions before or up uh, divisions. Uh, the other sections uh, before you start making decisions to see if they're on board and what information that they have as well. Um, You know, so that, that is always key. Communication is the most important thing that we can do, whether it's face to face or, or uh, uh, via some sort of uh, communications mode.
0: I agree. Yes, obviously. But I I want to touch on the training. Um, Obviously preparation and training is, key to and and being able to do effective exercises it's key to preparing an agency or an organization for whatever type of responses that one may be common so like in florida hurricanes flooding and stuff but also ones that are not so common and i want to go back to some of the 360 uh, photography and video that we do so that data set can actually actually be taken further down the line um, to train some of the incoming emergency managers and put them into the middle of a disaster, what it looks like out there, what it's actually like. Uh, and then obviously that can be used uh, to be reported as data for uh, either recovery funds, um, reporting from contractors that this is actually what they did. They have evidence to back that up and, and also to be able to create white papers and and some other research uh, research initiatives by some other organizations. So... Uh, we we are heavy also into being able to utilize those data sets for training in the future. So the more data, the better. There's there's kind of a quote that that we use around here uh, at the DLB, and it's "In God we trust; all others must bring data." And that's by W. Edwards uh, dimming. and uh, that kind of highlights what I think it's all about in emergency management. You know, we trust in God um, and the fact of you know we can get this done but if you're coming to the table you need to be bringing us something that we can use if not then we politely ask you to leave the scene because it's in in chaos the last thing you need is the hangers on and the guys that that are just kind of sitting around and taking up space because that space could be filled by someone else that could be bringing you something that could be a game changer or a vital missing piece of information on a critical decision you're making at a time that could save lives or be a a kind of tipping point in a recovery process.
1: Very, very true. So, Brian, if somebody was looking to get a hold of you, how could they find you?
0: So, we're all over social media as Disaster Logistics Board. Uh, You can go to our website, www.disasterlogs.org. They can send me an email, hq at disasterlogisticsboard.org. Um go ahead and use any of the social media stuff and obviously everyone come like and share everything that we do. Standard uh, procedure to say that.
1: And and for those of you that are driving or your pencils not sharp, don't worry about it. We'll put those uh, uh, those links down in the show notes as well so you can always just down there and click them. Alright Brian, toughest question of the day. What book, <laughs> books or publication do you recommend to somebody in the field of emergency
0: management? So I think the first thing that I would say is keep up with outlets like EM Weekly, Emergency Manager's Weekly Report, uh, blogs and such like that 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 are focused on EM because it's revolving information and up-to-date information. But when it comes down to a book, I got to plug my old friend Jake Wood here. So he has a great book called Take Command. And it, it's It's geared towards any type of leader at the end of the day. It does talk a lot about business, but most specifically, he's utilizing his experience uh, from the military and in Team Rubicon and disaster response and and being able to make critical decisions um, during chaos management, right? Like during during the most important times and, and how to be able to take command in those situations. So Take Command by Jake Wood.
1: That's a, that is a good book and he did a really good job on that book. All right. Well, if you had one thing, if you were able to talk to all the emergency managers at one time, what would you say to them?
0: I would say, make sure you have a volunteer agency liaison inside of your organization and do active outreach to find the organizations that are in your space, state level or all the way down to local level. Uh, that are out there and what their capabilities are and try to fold them into the process, get them trained, get the POC info, and also encourage them to apply for state VOAD membership.
1: Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. And it was a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thanks so much, Todd. Take care.